chapter eleven of washington and his comrades in arms by george wrong this librivox recording is in the public domain yorktown the critical stroke of the war was near in the south after general green superseded gates in the command the tide of war began to turn cornwallis now had to fight a better general than gates green arrived at charlotte north carolina in december he found an army badly equipped wretchedly clothed and confronted by a greatly superior force he had however some excellent officers and he did not scorn as gates with the stiff military traditions of a regular soldier had scorned the aid of guerrilla leaders like marion and sumter serving with green was general daniel morgan the enterprising and resourceful virginia rifleman who had fought valorously at quebec at saratoga and later in virginia steuben was busy in virginia holding the british in check and keeping open the line of communication with the north the mobility and diversity of the american forces puzzled cornwallis when he marched from camden into north carolina he hoped to draw green into a battle and to crush him as he had crushed gates he sent tarleton with a smaller force to strike a deadly blow at morgan who was threatening the british garrisons at the points in the interior farther south there was no more capable leader than tarleton he had won many victories but now came his day of defeat on january seventeenth seventeen eighty one he met morgan at the cowpens about thirty miles west from king's mountain morgan not quite sure of the discipline of his men stood with his back to a broad river so that retreat was impossible tarleton had marched nearly all night over bad roads but confident in the superiority of his weary and hungry veterans he advanced to the attack at daybreak the result was a complete disaster tarleton himself barely got away with two hundred and seventy men and left behind nearly nine hundred casualties and prisoners cornwallis had lost one-third of his effective army there was nothing for him to do but to take his loss and still to press on northward in the hope that the more southerly inland posts could take care of themselves in the early spring of seventeen eighty one when heavy rains were making the roads difficult and the rivers almost impassable green was luring cornwallis northward and cornwallis was chasing green at hillsborough in the northwest corner of north carolina cornwallis issued a proclamation saying that the colony was once more under the authority of the king and inviting the loyalists bullied and oppressed during nearly six years to come out openly on the royal side on the fifteenth of march green took a stand and offered battle at guilford court house in the early afternoon after a march of twelve miles without food cornwallis with less than two thousand men attacked green's force of about four thousand by evening the british held the field and had captured green's guns but they had lost heavily and they were two hundred miles from their base their friends were timid and in fact few and their numerous enemies were filled with passionate resolution cornwallis now wrote to urge clinton to come to his aid abandon new york he said bring the whole british force into virginia and end the war by one smashing stroke that would be better than sticking to salt pork in new york 
and sending only enough men to virginia to steal tobacco cornwallis could not remain where he was far from the sea go back to camden he would not after a victory and thus seemed to admit a defeat so he decided to risk all and go forward by hard marching he led his army down the cape fear river to wilmington on the sea and there he arrived on the ninth of april green however simply would not do what cornwallis wished stay in the north to be beaten by a second smashing blow he did what cornwallis would not do he marched back into the south and disturbed the british dream that now the country was held securely it mattered little that after this the british won minor victories lord rawdon still holding camden defeated green on the twenty fifth of april at hobkirk's hill none the less did rawdon find his position untenable and he too was forced to march to the sea which he reached at a point near charleston augusta the capital of georgia fell to the americans on the fifth of june and the operations of the summer went decisively in their favor the last battle in the field of the farther south was fought on the eighth of september at utah springs about fifty miles northwest of charleston the british held their position and thus could claim a victory but it was fruitless they had been forced steadily to withdraw all the boasted fabric of royal government in the south had come down with a crash and the tories who had supported it were having evil days while these events were happening farther south cornwallis himself without waiting for word from clinton in new york had adopted his own policy and marched from wilmington northward into virginia benedict arnold was now in virginia doing what mischief he could to his former friends in january he burned the little town of richmond destined in the years to come to be a great centre in another civil war some twenty miles south from richmond lay in a strong position petersburg later also to be drenched with blood shed in civil strife arnold was already at petersburg when cornwallis arrived on the twentieth of may he was now in high spirits he did not yet realize the extent of the failure farther south virginia he believed to be half loyalist at heart the negroes would he thought turn against their masters when they knew that the british were strong enough to defend them above all he had a finely disciplined army of five thousand men cornwallis was the more confident when he knew by whom he was opposed in april washington had placed lafayette in charge of the defense of virginia and not only was lafayette young and untried in such a command but he had at first only three thousand badly trained men to confront the formidable british general cornwallis said cheerily that the boy was certainly now his prey and began the task of catching him an exciting chase followed lafayette did some good work it was impossible with his inferior force to fight cornwallis but he could tire him out by drawing him into long marches when cornwallis advanced to attack lafayette at richmond lafayette was not there but had slipped away and was able to use rivers and mountains for his defence cornwallis had more than one string to his bow the legislature of virginia was sitting at charlottesville lying in the interior nearly a hundred miles northwest from richmond 
and cornwallis conceived the daring plan of raiding charlottesville capturing the governor of virginia thomas jefferson and at one stroke shattering the civil administration tarleton was the man for such an enterprise of hard riding and bold fighting and he nearly succeeded jefferson indeed escaped by rapid flight but tarleton took the town burned the public records and captured ammunition and arms but he really effected little lafayette was still unconquered his army was growing and the british were finding that virginia like new england was definitely against them at new york meanwhile clinton was in a dilemma he was dismayed at the news of the march of cornwallis to virginia cornwallis had been so long practically independent in the south that he assumed not only the right to shape his own policy but adopted a certain tartness in his dispatches to clinton his superior when now in this tone he urged clinton to abandon new york and join him clinton's answer on the twenty sixth of june was a definite order to occupy some port in virginia easily reached from the sea to make it secure and to send to new york reinforcements the french army at newport was beginning to move towards new york and clinton had intercepted letters from washington to lafayette revealing a serious design to make an attack with the aid of the french fleet such was the game which fortune was playing with the british generals each desired the other to abandon his own plans and to come to his aid they were agreed however that some strong point must be held in virginia as a naval base and on the second of august cornwallis established this base at yorktown at the mouth of the york river a mile wide where it flows into chesapeake bay his cannon could command the whole width of the river and keep in safety ships anchored above the town yorktown lay about halfway between new york and charleston and from here a fleet could readily carry a military force to any needed point on the sea lafayette with a growing army closed in on yorktown and cornwallis almost before he knew it was besieged with no hope of rescue except by a fleet then it was that from the sea the restless and mysterious sea came the final decision man seems so much the sport of circumstance that apparent trifles remote from his consciousness appear at times to determine his fate it is a commonplace of romance that a pretty face or a stray bullet has altered the destiny not merely of families but of nations and now in the american revolution it was not forts on the hudson nor manoeuvres in the south that were to decide the issue but the presence of a few more french warships than the british could muster at a given spot and time washington had urged in january that france should plan to have at least temporary naval superiority in american waters in accordance with rochambeau's principle nothing without naval supremacy washington wished to concentrate against new york but the french were of a different mind believing that the great effort should be made in chesapeake bay there the british could have no defences like those at new york and the french fleet which was stationed in the west indies could reach more readily than new york a point in the south early in may rochambeau knew that a french fleet was coming to his aid but not yet did he know where the stroke should be made 
it was clear however that there was nothing for the french to do at newport and by the beginning of june rochambeau prepared to set his army in motion the first step was to join washington on the hudson and at any rate alarm clinton as to an imminent attack on new york and hold him to that spot after nearly a year of idleness the french soldiers were delighted that now at last there was to be an active movement the long march from newport to new york began in glowing june amid the beauties of nature now overcome by intense heat and obliged to march at two o'clock in the morning now drenched by heavy rains the french plodded on and joined their american comrades along the hudson early in july by the fourteenth of august washington knew two things that a great french fleet under the comte de grasse had sailed for the chesapeake and that the british army had reached yorktown soon the two allied armies both lying on the east side of the hudson moved southward on the twentieth of august the americans began to cross the river at king's ferry eight miles below peekskill washington had to leave the greater part of his army before new york and his meagre force of some two thousand was soon over the river in spite of torrential rains by the twenty fourth of august the french too had crossed with some four thousand men and with their heavy equipment the british made no move clinton was however watching these operations nervously the united armies marched down the right bank of the hudson so rapidly that they had to leave useful effects behind and some grumbled at the privation clinton thought his enemy might still attack new york from the new jersey shore he knew that near staten island the americans were building great bakeries as if to feed an army besieging new york suddenly on the twenty ninth of august the armies turned away from new york southwestward across new jersey and still only the two leaders knew whither they were bound american patriotism has liked to dwell on this last great march of washington to him this was familiar country it was here that he had harassed clinton on the march from philadelphia to new york three long years before the french marched on the right at the rate of about fifteen miles a day the country was beautiful and the roads were good autumn had come and the air was bracing the peaches hung ripe on the trees the dutch farmers who four years earlier had been plaintive about the pillage by the hessians now seemed prosperous enough and brought abundance of provisions to the army they had just gathered their harvest the armies passed through princeton with its fine college numbering as many as fifty students then on to trenton and across the delaware to philadelphia which the vanguard reached on the third of september there were gala scenes in philadelphia twenty thousand people witnessed a review of the french army to one of the french officers the city seemed immense with its seventy-two streets all in a straight line the shops appeared to be equal to those of paris and there were pretty women well dressed in the french fashion the quaker city forgot its old suspicion of the french and their catholic religion luzerne the french minister gave a great banquet on the evening of the fifth of september eighty guests took their places at table and as they sat down good news arrived as yet few knew the destination of the army but now luzerne read momentous tidings and the secret was out twenty-eight french ships of the line had arrived in chesapeake bay 
an army of three thousand men had already disembarked and was in touch with the army of lafayette washington and rochambeau were bound for yorktown to attack cornwallis great was the joy in the streets the soldiers and the people shouted and sang and humorists mounted on chairs delivered in advance mock funeral orations on cornwallis it was planned that the army should march the fifty miles to elkton at the head of chesapeake bay and there take boat to yorktown two hundred miles to the south at the other end of the bay but there were not ships enough washington had asked the people of influence in the neighborhood to help him to gather transports but few of them responded a deadly apathy in regard to the war seems to have fallen upon many parts of the country the bay now in control of the french fleet was quite safe for unarmed ships half the americans and some of the french embarked and the rest continued on foot there was need of haste and the troops marched on to baltimore and beyond at the rate of twenty miles a day over roads often bad and across rivers sometimes unbridged at baltimore some further regiments were taken on board transports and most of them made the final stages of the journey by water some there were however and among them the vicomte de noailles brother-in-law of lafayette who tramped on foot the whole seven hundred and fifty-six miles from newport to yorktown washington himself left the army at elkton and rode on with rochambeau making about sixty miles a day mount vernon lay on the way and here washington paused for two or three days it was the first time he had seen it since he had set out on may fourth seventeen seventy five to attend the continental congress at philadelphia little dreaming then of himself as chief leader in a long war now he pressed on to join lafayette by the end of the month an army of sixteen thousand men of whom about one-half were french was besieging cornwallis with seven thousand men in yorktown heart-stirring events had happened while the armies were marching to the south the comte de grasse with his great fleet arrived at the entrance to the chesapeake on the thirtieth of august while the british fleet under admiral graves still lay at new york grasse now the pivot upon which everything turned was the french admiral in the west indies taking advantage of a lull in operations he had slipped away with his whole fleet to make his stroke and be back again before his absence had caused great loss it was a risky enterprise but a wise leader takes risks he intended to be back in the west indies before the end of october it was not easy for the british to realize that they could be outmatched on the sea rodney had sent word from the west indies that ten ships were the limit of grasse's numbers and that even fourteen british ships would be adequate to meet him a british fleet numbering nineteen ships of the line commanded by admiral graves left new york on the thirty first of august and five days later stood off the entrance to chesapeake bay on the mainland across the bay lay yorktown the one point now held by the british on that great stretch of coast when graves arrived he had an unpleasant surprise the strength of the french had been well concealed there to confront him lay twenty-four enemy ships the situation was even worse for the french fleet from newport was on its way to join grasse on the afternoon of the fifth of september the day of the great rejoicing in philadelphia there was a spectacle of surpassing interest off cape henry at the mouth of the bay the two great fleets joined battle under sail 
and poured their fire into each other when night came the british had about three hundred and fifty casualties and the french about two hundred there was no brilliant leadership on either side one of graves's largest ships the terrible was so crippled that he burnt her and several others were badly damaged admiral hood one of graves's officers says that if his leader had turned suddenly and anchored his ships across the mouth of the bay the french admiral with his fleet outside would probably have sailed away and left the british fleet in possession as it was the two fleets lay at sea inside of each other for four days on the morning of the tenth the squadron from newport under barris arrived and increased grasse's ships to thirty-six against such odds graves could do nothing he lingered near the mouth of the chesapeake for a few days still and then sailed away to new york to refit at the most critical hour of the whole war a british fleet crippled and spiritless was hurrying to a protecting port and the fleur-de-lis waved unchallenged on the american coast the action of graves spelled the doom of cornwallis the most potent fleet ever gathered in those waters cut him off from rescue by sea yorktown fronted on the york river with a deep ravine and swamps at the back of the town from the land it could on the west side be approached by a road leading over marsh and easily defended and on the east side by solid ground about half a mile wide now protected by redoubts and entrenchments with an outer and an inner parallel could cornwallis hold out at new york no longer in any danger there was still a keen desire to rescue him by the end of september he received word from clinton that reinforcements had arrived from england and that with a fleet of twenty-six ships of the line carrying five thousand troops he hoped to sail on the fifth of october to the rescue of yorktown there was delay later clinton wrote that on the basis of assurances from admiral graves he hoped to get away on the twelfth a british officer in new york describes the hopes with which the populace watched these preparations the fleet however did not sail until the nineteenth of october a speaker in congress at the time said that the british admiral should certainly hang for this delay on the fifth of october for some reason unexplained cornwallis abandoned the outer parallel and withdrew behind the inner one this left him in yorktown a space so narrow that nearly every part of it could be swept by enemy artillery by the eleventh of october shells were dropping incessantly from a distance of only three hundred yards and before this powerful fire the earthworks crumbled on the fourteenth the french and americans carried by storm two redoubts on the second parallel the redoubtable tarleton was in yorktown and he says that day and night there was acute danger to any one showing himself and that every gun was dismounted as soon as seen he was for evacuating the place and marching away whither he hardly knew cornwallis still held gloucester on the opposite side of the york river and he now planned to cross to that place with his best troops leaving behind his sick and wounded he would try to reach philadelphia by the route over which washington had just ridden the feat was not impossible washington would have had a stern chase in following cornwallis who might have been able to live off the country clinton could help by attacking philadelphia which was almost defenceless as it was a storm prevented the crossing to gloucester the defences of yorktown were weakening and in face of this new discouragement the british leader made up his mind that the end was near tarleton and other officers condemned cornwallis sharply for not persisting in the effort to get away 
cornwallis was a considerate man i thought it would have been wanton and inhuman he reported later to sacrifice the lives of this small body of gallant soldiers he had already written to clinton to say that there would be great risk in trying to send a fleet and army to rescue him on the nineteenth of october came the climax cornwallis surrendered with some hundreds of sailors and about seven thousand soldiers of whom two thousand were in hospital the terms were similar to those which the british had granted at charleston to general lincoln who was now charged with carrying out the surrender such is the play of human fortune at two o'clock in the afternoon the british marched out between two lines the french on the one side the americans on the other the french in full-dress uniform the americans in some cases half-naked and barefoot no civilian sightseers were admitted and there was a respectful silence in the presence of this great humiliation to a proud army the town itself was a dreadful spectacle with as a french observer noted big holes made by bombs cannon-balls splinters barely covered graves arms and legs of blacks and whites scattered here and there most of the houses riddled with shot and devoid of window-panes on the very day of surrender clinton sailed from new york with a rescuing army nine days later forty-four british ships were counted off the entrance to chesapeake bay the next day there were none the great fleet had heard of the surrender and had turned back to new york washington urged grasse to attack new york or charleston but the french admiral was anxious to take his fleet back to meet the british menace farther south and he sailed away with all his great array the waters of the chesapeake the scene of one of the decisive events in human history were deserted by ships of war grasse had sailed however to meet a stern fate he was a fine fighting sailor his men said of him that he was on ordinary days six feet in height but on battle days six feet and six inches none the less did a few months bring the british a quick revenge on the sea on april twelfth seventeen eighty two rodney met grasse in a terrible naval battle in the west indies some five thousand in both fleets perished when night came grasse was rodney's prisoner and britain had recovered her supremacy on the sea on returning to france grasse was tried by court-martial and though acquitted he remained in disgrace until he died in seventeen eighty eight weary as he said of the burden of life the defeated cornwallis was not blamed in england his character commanded wide respect and he lived to play a great part in public life he became governor-general of india and was viceroy of ireland when his restless union with england was brought about in eighteen hundred yorktown settled the issue of the war but did not end it for more than a year still hostilities continued and in parts of the south embittered faction led to more bloodshed in england the news of yorktown caused a commotion when lord george germain received the first dispatch he drove with one or two colleagues to the prime minister's house in downing street a friend asked lord george how lord north had taken the news as he would have taken a ball in the breast he replied for he opened his arms exclaiming wildly as he paced up and down the apartment during a few minutes oh god it is all over words which he repeated many times under emotions of the deepest agitation and distress lord north might well be agitated for the news meant the collapse of a system the king was at kew and word was sent to him that sunday evening lord george germain had a small dinner party and the king's letter in reply was brought to the table the guests were curious to know how the king took the news the king writes just as he always does said lord george except that i observe he has omitted to mark the hour and the minute of his writing with his usual precision it needed a heavy shock to disturb the routine of george the third the king hoped no one would think that the bad news makes 
the smallest alteration in those principles of my conduct which have directed me in past time lesser men might change in the face of evils george the third was resolved to be changeless and never never to yield to the coercion of facts yield however he did the months which followed were months of political commotion in england for a time the ministry held its majority against the fierce attacks of burke and fox the house of commons voted that the war must go on but the heart had gone out of british effort everywhere the people were growing restless even the ministry acknowledged that the war in america must henceforth be defensive only in february seventeen eighty two a motion in the house of commons for peace was lost by only one vote and in march in spite of the frantic expostulations of the king lord north resigned the king insisted that at any rate some members of the new ministry must be named by himself and not as is the british constitutional custom by the prime minister on this too he had to yield and a whig ministry under the marquis of rockingham took office in march seventeen eighty two rockingham died on the first of july and it was lord shelburne later the marquis of lansdowne under whom the war came to an end the king meanwhile declared that he would return to hanover rather than yield the independence of the colonies over and over again he had said that no one should hold office in his government who would not pledge himself to keep the empire entire but even his obstinacy was broken on december five seventeen eighty two he opened parliament with a speech in which the right of the colonies to independence was acknowledged did i lower my voice when i came to that part of my speech george asked afterwards he might well speak in a subdued tone for he had brought the british empire to the lowest level in its history in america meanwhile the glow of victory had given way to weariness and lassitude rochambeau with his army remained in virginia washington took his forces back to the lines before new york sparing what men he could to help green in the south again came a long period of watching and waiting washington knowing the obstinate determination of the british character urged congress to keep up the numbers of the army so as to be prepared for any emergency sir guy carleton now commanded the british at new york and washington feared that this capable irishman might soothe the americans into a false security he had to speak sharply for the people seemed indifferent to further effort and congress was slack and impotent the outlook for washington's allies in the war darkened when in april seventeen eighty two rodney won his crushing victory and carried de grasse a prisoner to england france's ally spain had been besieging gibraltar for three years but in september seventeen eighty two when the great battering ships specially built for the purpose began a furious bombardment which was expected to end the siege the british defenders destroyed every ship and after that gibraltar was safe these events naturally stiffened the backs of the british in negotiating peace spain declared that she would never make peace without the surrender of gibraltar and she was ready to leave the question of american independence undecided or decided against the colonies if she could only get for herself the terms which she desired there was a period when france seemed ready to make peace on the basis of dividing the thirteen states leaving some of them independent while others should remain under the british king congress was not willing to leave its affairs at paris in the capable hands of franklin alone in seventeen eighty it sent john adams to paris and john jay and henry lawrence were also members of the american commission the austere adams disliked and was jealous of franklin gay in spite of his years seemingly indolent and easy-going always bland and reluctant to say no to any request from his friends but ever astute in the interests of his country adams told vergennes the french foreign minister that the americans owed nothing to france 
that france had entered the war in her own interests and that her alliance with america had greatly strengthened her position in europe france he added was really hostile to the colonies since she was jealously trying to keep them from becoming rich and powerful adams dropped hints that america might be compelled to make a separate peace with britain when it was proposed that the depreciated continental paper money largely held in france for purchases there should be redeemed at the rate of one good dollar for every forty in paper money adams declared to the horrified french creditors of the united states that the proposal was fair and just at the same time congress was drawing on franklin in paris for money to meet its requirements and franklin was expected to persuade the french treasury to furnish him with what he needed and to an amazing degree succeeded in doing so the self-interest which washington believed to be the dominant motive in politics was it is clear actively at work in the end the american commissioners negotiated directly with great britain without asking for the consent of their french allies on november thirtieth seventeen eighty two articles of peace between great britain and the united states were signed they were however not to go into effect until great britain and france had agreed upon terms of peace and it was not until september three seventeen eighty three that the definite treaty was signed so far as the united states was concerned spain was left quite properly to shift for herself thus it was that the war ended great britain had urged especially the case of the loyalists the return to them of their property and compensation for their losses she could not achieve anything franklin indeed asked that americans who had been ruined by the destruction of their property should be compensated by britain that canada should be added to the united states and that britain should acknowledge her fault in distressing the colonies in the end the american commissioners agreed to ask the individual states to meet the desires of the british negotiators but both sides understood that the states would do nothing that the confiscated property would never be returned that most of the exiled loyalists would remain exiles and that britain herself must compensate them for their losses this in time she did on a scale inadequate indeed but expressive of a generous intention the united states remained the great northwest and the mississippi became the western frontier with destiny already whispering that weak and grasping spain must soon let go of the farther west stretching to the pacific ocean when great britain signed peace with france and spain in january seventeen eighty three gibraltar was not returned spain had to be content with the return of minorca and florida which she had been forced to yield to britain in seventeen sixty three each side restored its conquests in the west indies france the chief mainstay of the war during its later years gained from it really nothing beyond the weakening of her ancient enemy the magnanimity of france especially towards her exacting american ally is one of the fine things in the great combat the huge sum of nearly eight hundred million dollars spent by france in the war was one of the chief factors in the financial crisis which six years after the signing of the peace brought on the french revolution and with it the overthrow of the bourbon monarchy politics bring strange bedfellows and they have rarely brought stranger ones than the democracy of young america and the political despotism linked with idealism of the ancient monarchy of france the british did not evacuate new york until carleton had gathered there the loyalists who claimed his protection these unhappy people made their way to the seaports often after long and distressing journeys overland charleston was the chief rallying place in the south and from there many sad-hearted people sailed away never to see again their former homes the british had captured new york in september seventeen seventy six and it was more than seven years later on november twenty five seventeen eighty three that the last of the british fleet put to sea britain and america had broken forever their political tie and for many years to come embittered memories kept up the alienation it was fitting that washington should bid farewell to his army at new york 
the centre of his hopes and anxieties during the greater part of the long struggle on december fourth seventeen eighty three his officers met at a tavern to bid him farewell the tears ran down his cheeks as he parted with these brave and tried men he shook their hands in silence and in a fashion still preserved in france kissed each of them then they watched him as he was rowed away in his barge to the new jersey shore congress was now sitting at annapolis in maryland and there on december twenty three seventeen eighty three washington appeared and gave up finally his command we are told that the members sat covered to show the sovereignty of the union a quaint touch of the thought of the time the little town made a brave show and the gallery was filled with a beautiful group of elegant ladies with solemn sincerity washington commended the country to the protection of almighty god and the army to the special care of congress passion had already subsided for the president of congress in his reply praised the magnanimous king and nation of great britain by the end of the year washington was at mount vernon hoping now to be able as he said simply to make and sell a little flour annually and to repair houses fast going to ruin he did not foresee the troubled years and the vexing problems which still lay before him nor could he in his modest estimate of himself know that for a distant posterity his character and his words would have compelling authority what washington's countryman motley said of william of orange is true of washington himself as long as he lived he was the guiding star of a brave nation and when he died the little children cried in the streets but this is not all to this day in the domestic and foreign affairs of the united states the words of washington the policies which he favored have a living and almost binding force this attitude of mind is not without its dangers a nation is required to make new adjustments of policy and the past is only in part the master of the present but it is the tribute of a grateful nation to the noble character of its chief founder end of chapter eleven end of washington and his comrades in arms by george wrong